pastor this evening, so I'm thankful for a microphone tonight because I haven't had much of a voice the last two days. But in spite of that, I hope you can hear me, and I'm grateful that you're here tonight as we wrap up our study of how to understand the Bible. This is week 11 of 12 of this particular series, so thanks for hanging in there over the last 10 weeks as we've worked through things. Just a quick review of what have we been talking about just to try to, as we try to bring this together tonight and next week. We began foundationally looking at what we believe about the Bible. We started week one talking about the authority of the Bible and how we can believe it because it's from the Lord. We talked about the inspiration of the Bible and how it's breathed out by God and because of how it's inerrant. There's no errors in it. It's truthful in all things. We talked about the sufficiency of the Bible. That it's all that we need to know God's will for our lives, all we need for life and godliness. We also talked about the clarity of Scripture and that you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand the Bible. That with the Holy Spirit within you, you can, you can understand the message God has for you in that. We then turned to what you do not do in interpreting the Bible, common mistakes people make. And just to remind you of a few of those, we talked about the self-centered approach to the Bible. What does the Bible mean to me? What does the Bible mean to you? And that approach, and the Bible has a meaning. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It's, it has a meaning inherent in the text. We talked about the pragmatic approach to the Bible. A lot of people do. We just kind of go to it in a very self-focused way, just only trying to solve our problems and not looking for what God has for us and who's God. And we talked about the emotional approach to it, where instead of letting the Bible sit in judgment on us, we sit in judgment on the Bible. I like that. I don't like that. I'm not going to believe that. Surely God understands my situation. That doesn't apply to me and the dangers of that approach. We talked about the mystical approach, just like, oh, Lord, I need a word from you. And just sticking your finger on a verse, hoping that's it, when we miss the totality of studying the, all of the Word of God. In contrast to that, we've spent a lot of weeks talking about what do we do as we interpret the Scripture. And we talked about letting the text convey the meaning. The text has a meaning, and it's not what I think it is and what you think it is. It doesn't mean different things to different people. There's different applications to us, but there is a meaning in the text, the, thought, the author's intent. So we talked about how do we find that, and we look at context, and we ask questions of the text, and we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer, and we also talked about the role of community in meeting together and discussing together the Word of God. And over the last six weeks, then, we've looked at the different genres of Scripture, because each genre of Scripture has different principles for interpretation. So we've looked at things like historical narrative and the Proverbs and poetry, prophecy, parables, epistles, and looking at how do we understand each one of those particular genres of Scripture. Now, tonight we come to a broad category that's called figurative language, because it's not tied to one genre. That's why we're doing this separate, because you find figurative language in all parts of the Bible in every genre of the Bible. So that's tonight, and then next week we're going to talk about resources to help you in your study of the Bible, and I'll answer your questions. And so some of you have given me a few questions you want me to address next week, and I'm excited about addressing those. If you have questions you want me to address, find me tonight, email me, call the office, there's some little sheets down front here. If you don't want me to know you're the one asking the question, you just write it down on here and, and turn it back into me, or leave it on my desk in the office, or on any desk in the office, give it to CJ and tell him it's anonymous, and he'll give it to me. But, you know, if you have questions you want me to answer next week, we'll talk about resources, but I also want to make sure your questions are answered as we wrap up this particular series. Now, there's just one more thing I want to mention coming up outside of this series that may be of interest to you. Friday, April 21st, we're hosting a simulcast of Secret Church. If you're not familiar about Secret Church, this is David Platt. He used to be the pastor of the church at Brook Hills. He's now the president of the International Mission Board. He started a ministry called Radical, and they regularly do. I don't even know how many times it's been done, but they're doing another Secret Church this year. And it's going to be on Friday night, April 21st. It's six hours. I'm serious about it. Six hours of in-depth Bible teaching. Platt talks about as fast as I talk. So brace yourself. We'll have caffeine for you here. Don't worry. So it'll be a Friday night from 6 to midnight. Or maybe it may even go to 1230. But we'll do a simulcast of it here. Um, a church member has provided resources. So it's free for any gateway, regular attendee, or member. So any of you sitting in this room can come for free. No charge to it. And get a book to go with it. We do need you to register ahead of time if you want to make sure you have the book 
that goes with it. And so just call the church office, email the church office, <coughs> excuse me, and we'll get you signed up. But the topic this time, it's a perfect fault. It's the authority of the Bible. How do we know it's trustworthy? Where did it come from? How did it get put together? Why do we have the canon of books that we have now? And then how do we understand it? So it's going to be a great follow-up to the very thing we've been talking about, just going in-depth. So April 21st, Friday night, six and a half hours, right here in the sanctuary. And call the office, email the office to sign up. Well, so we begin tonight our topic of figurative language. I want to remind us big picture, like we do most weeks. Why are we doing this study? Why have we devoted 10 or 11 weeks starting tonight to how do we understand the Bible? And it's not for academic reasons. Our goal in this is not so we can become some theologian. Our goal in this is we want to know God. And God has chosen to reveal himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. If we want to know God, we have to know his word, and we need to understand it correctly. So I've given us just some reminders of that on the, on the front of your handout tonight, just to remind us of why we're doing this. And so here's our three reminders, all from Psalms tonight, <coughs> excuse me, of why we're doing this study. First, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or Psalm 42, 1 through 3. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And my tears have been my food day and night. We'll talk about that in a minute. In Psalm 119.20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Friends, as you look at these, let me encourage you to make these a prayer as you pray. If you find your affections for the word of God are growing weak or waning, let this be your prayer. And if you've never prayed scripture, it's simple. You read a verse and you pray it back to the Lord. So your prayer could be like, Lord, you told me in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving soul. Lord, would you give me a hunger for your law that my soul might be revived? Lord, you told me that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise simple. Lord, I need wisdom. Would you let your word be alive to me? And so you just kind of work through it and pray. And if you never tried doing that, I commend that to you this week to take even these three texts and just pray this back to the Lord. Take Psalm 42 and say, Lord, you've told us that a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And God... I don't feel that right now. Lord, would you give me a hunger for you? Would you let my soul pant for you? Would you let this be my experience? You just pray these verses back to the Lord and just see what the Holy Spirit will do as you do that. Now, the other reason I gave you these particular ones for reminding why we, why we do what we do is all three of these have figurative language in them. So not only are these great prayers, but these are all, all have figurative language in them to help us understand who God is and what we do. So we'll explain that in a minute. So turn the page on, this back, on page two there. Let's talk about figurative language. Now, what is figurative language? Figurative language, sometimes it's called figures of speech. These are expressions that are not to be understood literally. Well, the Bible is literally true. Well, yes, it is, but there's expressions in the Bible that to understand it correctly, we don't understand them literally true. Now, every language does this in different ways. Perhaps I'll tell CJ or ask CJ, hey, CJ, can you go to the sanctuary and hit the lights? I don't come in here and find CJ on a ladder with a hammer hitting the lights and breaking them. Why? Because that, what I ask him to do hit the lights was a figurative expression. He knew exactly what I meant because our culture understands that head the lights means you flip the light switch. Or I might be like, hey, CJ, can you run into the sanctuary and turn down the air? Well, I don't see him in here with big paper trying to push the air down to the ground. Why? Because he understands the expression. And so all languages have these figurative expressions where the, where the expressions are not taken literally as the words say. Now, what does this include in it? Well, you see there on your handout, this includes things like exaggeration, 
or idioms, metaphors, similes, synecdoches, and anthropomorphisms. And if you don't remember what all those words are, that's okay. We'll talk about those in a minute. So we'll have a little quick flashback to some of our um, elementary school grammar on this. Now, why is figurative language used in the Bible or by us? Well, there's three reasons why we use figurative language and why the Bible uses figurative language. Number one, it conveys emotion. There's something about having poetic forms of expression that conveys emotion that we don't get if we just simply read things in a very, very straight form or straight manner. Second of all, it makes it memorable. We remember figurative language much more than we remember just normal, straightforward science reports or something. And then number three, it makes language fun. So we use figurative language in our own speech because it's, it conveys emotion, it makes it memorable, and it makes our language much more fun. Now imagine if we did not have figurative language. If there was no figurative language, this is how Psalm 19 might read. It might, be, might read something like this. God's word is all you need. Study it. That might be happy because there's, you lose all the beautiful imagery out of this. Or Psalm 42.1, if there was no figurative language to it, it would simply read, my soul needs you a lot. And we miss that imagery of the deer panting for streams of water. And when you read Psalm 42 as a deer pants for flowing streams, you have an image in your mind that sticks with you. And so remember, you catch the emotion of it that you lose if it simply says, I need you, God, period. So there's emotion that's memorable in it. Or my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. We can remember that a lot better than during every 24-hour period, you should focus on God. There's just something about figurative language that makes the language fun, that makes it memorable, that it conveys emotions that we would miss otherwise. Let's talk about several forms of figurative language that you find in the Bible and how they're used. And we're focused a lot, probably half of our time, on the figurative language of exaggeration. Because this one's, to use the idiom, stumps people. You all know what I mean when I say stumps someone. That's not a literally true expression. That's a figurative expression. But it confuses people a lot of times when they read the Bible. So what is exaggeration? Exaggeration is overstatement. It is saying something is more than it really is. Now, it is a normal part of speech both now and in the time of the biblical authors as well. But if I just simply said exaggeration, usually people's first response is not positive. It's usually a negative response. Because think about parents. You tell your kids, don't exaggerate. Tell me the truth. You know, we, we think of that a lot. So usually when we think of exaggeration, we're thinking of a negative concept. Of it. We think of it as being imprecise, inexact, or perhaps even a lie. And so that colors our perspective. And when you hear someone say the Bible has exaggeration, we're kind of like, no, 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 that sounds like heresy. The Bible's always true. It can't exaggerate. Well, what does it mean in terms of figure of language? Well, let's start back in our own language in terms of exaggeration. Have you ever said, I'm starving? Or had someone tell you, I'm starving? If you don't believe in figurative language, when someone tells you you're starving, you better grab them, throw them in the front seat of your car, buck them down, and rush them to the ER. But we understand what people are saying when they say that. My kids will be like, Daddy, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. I don't be like, you're lying, you can't fit a horse in your stomach, that's impossible. We don't, we don't correct this figurative language. I'll have a ton of chores to do. I actually only have three, it's not a ton. You know? If I can't get my phone to work, I'll die. You know, We have all sorts of expressions in there. My mom's going to kill me when she sees the mess I made. Or, you know, this is so boring, just kill me now. I've told you a million times already. I think I've used that with my boys in the last week. And they're not like, Daddy, you've only told me 17 times, not a million. Yeah. I have an endless pile of bills on my desk. These shoes are killing me. Nothing can stop those guys. I mean, we, we use it every day. And we understand what it's marketing people use it all the time as well. I don't know if these expressions have changed. I don't watch tons of TV, but AT&T used to say, reach out and touch someone. We don't go fault them and sue them for faulty advertising because you can't touch them through the phone. We know what they're saying. Or the Energizer, it keeps going and going and going and going. Well, when the Energizer battery runs out on my kid's toy, I don't send it back to the Energizer saying, you told me your marketing, it keeps going and going and going. It stopped after three weeks. 
We understand it's figurative language or visas everywhere you want to be. We don't go to visa and we find the one restaurant that doesn't take it. You know, it's figurative language, and we understand that, and it's the same is true in the time of the Bible. The next point in your handout hopefully will clarify. Exaggeration is different than lying when it is understood as a type of speech to communicate a feeling. And so exaggeration is different than lying when it's understood to be a form of speech. Now, we know from Scripture that lying is a sin. Scripture is very clear we're not to bear false witness, we're not to lie. There is no compromise, no question about that. And so if you're exaggerating to deceive someone, that is a sin. If I came in and if I went to the Montgomery Baptist Association and said, we have 400 people at Gateway on Sunday, well, that'd be a lie. I'd be trying to deceive. We didn't have 400 people here at Gateway on Sunday morning. That'd be trying to deceive. And I, I might be like, oh, I'm just exaggerating. Well, no, that's attempting to deceive. But using figures of expression, like I've got a ton of bills on my desk or I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, we're presenting it in a different way, not to deceive, but to convey an emotion that we are feeling. And so just differentiate that exaggeration to convey feeling versus exaggeration to deceive. Now, in the Bible, there is exaggeration is found throughout the entire Bible, and it's an acceptable literary form because it's communicating emotion. It's not being used to deceive, so we have to differentiate it again from lying. So what do you do when you find exaggeration in the Bible? Well, basically, you use the principles we've been talking about for the last 11 weeks. All the things we talked about of looking at context and interpreting Scripture and all those type of things we're going to use, but I've tried to summarize it for you in three points here. If when you find a statement in the Bible that appears to be exaggeration, do three things with it. Number one... You seek to understand what that image is trying to convey. So seek to understand what the image is trying to convey. So if we go back to Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's not an exaggeration when you're trying to understand the imagery. But when you get to Psalm 119, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all time. You could probably go back to the psalm and say, I bet there was a minute somewhere in your life that you weren't consumed with longing for God's rules. We don't, we don't fault the biblical writer. This was an exaggeration to convey an emotion of his desire for God's word on that. So you try to figure out what the image was that was being conveyed, the feeling that was being conveyed. Number two, you read the surrounding context, both the immediate context and the broad context to understand the teaching. And this, I'm not going to repeat this one a lot because we've talked about this at length in our previous weeks. But no verse was designed to stand in isolation. The verses were added later to help us find these. If you remember from our studies before, when the Bible was written, there were no chapters and verses. That was added to help us find things. And so we kind of have a tendency to pull out verses, but that wasn't the way it was designed to be. It's part of a flow of thought that the author intended. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we we'll always read the surrounding context. There's the immediate context of where this is in the flow of thought, and what's the broad context of the book, the section of the book, the whole genre of Scripture. You're trying to find the big picture, and it'll make sense of the image that you have there. And then third, you let Scripture interpret scripture scripture cannot contradict itself and so if you see something in there that's an exaggeration you're having trouble understanding well let the rest of the counsel of god's word interpret it for you because it cannot contradict itself and we'll give you some examples of what that looks like in a few minutes so turn the page how do you understand when something is exaggeration or not because exaggeration is not highlighted in green in your bible it's not put in italics it's not framed in some way so how do you recognize it for what it is and not get confused on what is exaggeration or what is not. Well, here's about five different things that can help you find exaggeration, this type of figurative language, when you're in the Scripture. Number one, the statement that you're reading is literally impossible. When you see a statement in the Bible that is literally impossible, that's a great sign you're dealing with an appropriate form of communication known as exaggeration. For example, 2 Samuel 1.23. This is David writing, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Friends, that's impossible physically. 
I don't know a man on this, on this earth who's going to be swifter than an eagle in his running speed. Maybe some of the Olympians you've seen can go pretty quick, but I don't think they can outrun an eagle's flight or be stronger than a lion or a group of lions coming at them. It's a statement, but it's a statement that's not there because the point of this is not the eagles or the speed or the strength. The point is what's going on in the lives of Saul and Jonathan here as an image for us. Or how about Matthew 7, <coughs> 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, we can get a speck in our eye, that's literally possible. There's no way to get a log in your eye. That statement is literally impossible, so there's an exaggeration here going on to help us understand what's going on. Again, if we did not have figure of language, this might read something like this, focus on your own sin before you focus on the sin of others. Well, that's a truth we could give, but there's something memorable about this image of the speck and the log. And friends, there's even non-Christians out there who remember this because they've heard this at some point in their past. And so it's a memorable statement. Or how about Matthew 19, 24? Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's some well-meaning people who try to interpret this and say, well, there was a gate one time that was called an eye, and the camels had to kneel down. But friends, that, that's the wrong interpretation. It has absolutely nothing to do with this. This is not about a gate. This is an image. This is an exaggerated speech to make a point. And a camel was the largest animal known in the region of Palestine. The eye of a needle was the smallest hole that a person could observe in their household. So it's an intentional image of exaggeration of the largest animal with the smallest hole saying this is impossible. It's not just it's something difficult, but it's impossible. But something impossible is possible because God is all-powerful. And so there's an imagery there of exaggeration of something that's literally impossible that teaches an incredible truth that what is impossible for man is possible for God in this incredible image to help us understand it. The second way to recognize exaggeration is the statement was not literally fulfilled. The statement was not literally fulfilled. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Mark chapter 13, verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, that's splash water on my face, sorry. This is telling, this will lose the effect if the verse, if Jesus said to them, 96.3% of the stones in the temple complex will be torn down. Well, that loses the effect. Jesus is God. He could have done that. He could have told exactly what percentage of the stones would be destroyed when, when Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70. He could have given that to us and told us exactly how many stones. 3.7 million stones are going to fall and 135 in that column are there not going to fall. He could have told us that, but that's not the point. The point is not the numbers. It's an imagery here to show us the coming destruction on Jerusalem. Same thing like if we think about the World Trade Center when those got hit and people say it got completely leveled. We didn't fall them when we see like one little tiny corner of a building still standing. We got the image, the building collapsed. Same thing going on here. It's a statement that is not literally fulfilled because it's an image. It's an exaggeration to teach us a point. <clears throat> Number three, the statement, if applied literally, would conflict with other passages in the Bible. So if you find a statement that on the surface appears to conflict with something else, that could be a good indication. This is a type of communication known as exaggeration. For example, Matthew 23, 9. Call no man your father on earth. For you have one father who is in heaven. What do you do with that? You can't call anyone father? You, if you ever called your father father, are you sinning? Well, no, because look at Matthew 19, 19. Honor your father and mother. We don't go tell Matthew, Matthew, you're breaking your own law. You said here in Matthew 23, we can't call anyone father. Now you just call someone a father. What do you do with that? Because this is exaggeration here. We let scripture interpret scripture. And Matthew 19, 19 helps interpret Matthew 23, 9. You look at the surrounding context. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 23 about the Pharisees. 
And what he's trying to do, the Pharisees were all about their position, their influence, their pride. And so Jesus is showing them, don't call him Father. He's telling them, you don't exalt yourself to a place of influence to where you want people to call you by titles, to where you want people to lift yourself up. Don't rob the glory of God for yourself. You know, it's what he's saying in that. And so the whole point, this has absolutely nothing to do with how you, with the titles you use for your earthly father here. It has everything to do with human pride and self-exaltation versus honoring God. And so scripture interprets scripture. Matthew 23, 9 on the surface appears to conflict with other scriptures. But then when we understand the imagery, we get what it's saying. Likewise, in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. My friends, there's a lot of people who have taken that at literal face value over the years. As I've studied missions history and taught on missions history, there's so many missionary heroes who took that literally and abandoned their families for the gospel. And that's a whole other subject for a whole other day. But that's a misapplication of this. This would be, if you apply the statement literally of hating your own father and mother, you're now in violation of so many other commands of the Bible. And I'm not going to give you any more on that because you're going to talk about that passage in your small groups tonight. You're going to solve that riddle in your small groups if you wrestle with that one this evening. How about number four? How do you find exaggeration? The literal fulfillment of the statement would not achieve its goal. If you did what the statement on the surface appears to be, it would not achieve its goal. So again, if I ask CJ, hey, CJ, the service is going to begin in 30 minutes. Could you go hit the lights? And I come in here and CJ's got his hammer on the ladder and he's hitting all the lights in here. That would not achieve the goal of that statement. He may have literally done what I asked, but it misses the whole point of what we're getting at. And that's you not being in the dark and you're having to hold your cell phones out to, to read your, your handouts tonight. Same thing's true in the Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 here. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, if we apply this literally, Christians might be known as the one-eyed, one-hand society of people. Why are we not known that way? Why, why, why are none of you handless and eyeless? Because if we're struggling with lust and we pluck out our eyes and chop off our hands, lust remains. That doesn't fix the problem. Lust is a problem of the human heart. It's not a problem of the hands, it's not a problem of the eyes. And so a literal fulfillment of this statement would not achieve its goal. This whole point is about the seriousness of lust and how it wrecks lives and the seriousness you should do in seeking to kill sin. You know, some of the Puritan authors once said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. That's kind of a quick summary of what this is all about. So the fulfillment of this statement in a literal way would not achieve its goal. It's exaggeration to help us get the seriousness we must fight sin in our life. And then number five, just briefly, to recognize exaggeration, look for the use of universal language. You look for the use of universal language. All, everyone, no one. Now, this gets a little bit tricky because there's places where all does mean all and everyone does mean everyone. <clears throat> but a lot of times this is universal language, a form of exaggeration. So Mark chapter 1. This is very similar to what we already looked at in John 1 through our journey through John on Sunday mornings. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him or being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Well, you don't go back and find a historian who showed that 17 people in the city did not go out to the river and say, see, John's lying. What's the point of here? Huge multitudes were coming out for this baptism of repentance. People from all different walks of life were coming. So a lot of times we see all in the scripture, all is going to refer to, <coughs> excuse me, all without distinction. doesn't mean every single person, not all without exception. So usually the, the alls in the Bible are all without distinction, not all without exception. 
if that makes sense there on that one. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, none of us fault Paul here because there's still parts of the world. When he wrote this, there's still parts of the world today where the gospel is yet to be proclaimed. Jesus has told us he's not coming back until the gospel has been preached to all the nations. And so there's places that haven't been reached. So how can he say all, the all creation? Well, speaking, it's begun to go to all people because when this has been written, it's going to Gentiles and Jews alike. It's going to rich and poor. It's going to many nations. So again, here's an all without distinction, not an all without exception. So when you see exaggeration like that, when you see these type things in the scripture, try to figure out the images conveying, read the context, and then let scripture interpret scripture. And that's how you deal with exaggeration when you find it. Again, it's a very acceptable form of communication. <clears throat> now turn the page. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry about my voice and the coughing tonight. Thanks for bearing with me. Idioms. This is the next form of expression you'll find in the Bible. Idioms are expression whose meaning is not what the words literally say. Expressions whose meaning is not what the words literally say. Their meaning is derived from the culture and understood by the culture. Again, we understand that in our culture. And as having worked with international students for many years, idioms are fun because it confuses people from other countries. Tell a friend from China, that car cost me an arm and a leg. They're going to look really scared about going to the car dealership next time. Why? Because, you know, are we going to lose an appendage if I go there? But we all understand that an arm and a leg means a lot of money. How do we know that? Because our culture kind of explained that to us. We figured that up over the years. But that's not what the words literally mean. Or if you're working on a project with your friend and say, well, we're going back to the drawing board. I don't see a board in the room. What, what are we talking about? It's a, the words don't mean what they literally say. It's an expression that we get because of the culture. How about this one we use a good bit? You may be talking to someone and there's some difficulty and your friend is not sure how they're going to say, well, the ball's in your court now. Well, what does that mean? It has absolutely nothing to do with sports or a ball. It's, it's your decision now, but we don't say what we literally mean. We're using this idiomatic expression. You have a friend who's working on a project at work. and say, hey, don't bite off more than you can chew. If you're working with dangerous chemicals as a chemical engineer, I hope they're not biting off more than they can chew. You know, well, what is the point of that? It's, again, it's an idiomatic expression. Don't judge a book by its cover. Hey, they cut corners when they built that house. You know, I mean, we, we go on and on. I mean, there's millions of idioms, <coughs> not only in our language, but in every language of the world. And so idioms are expressions whose meaning is not what the words literally say. Every single culture has them. They're part of our daily speech. And yes, you find idioms in the Bible. The one that's most common in the Bible is, is described here as a love-hate description. In the Bible, to try to describe, and, or especially to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, if you love one thing more than other people in the Hebrew culture, you would express it as with a terms of love and hate, an idiomatic expression. The best way to illustrate this is looking at the Scripture. So Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 31. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved, loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So it doesn't mean that, that Jacob loved Rachel, but hated, but hated Leah. Well, it doesn't, when we think of hate, we think of anger, animosity, intentional infliction of hardships. But in the scripture, we see this love-hate description. It means one is love more. It's an idiomatic expression for the Jewish people. Obviously, Jacob did not hate Leah in the way we define hate because they had six sons. So they at least had to get along well enough and have some level of relationship to be able to have six children. There wasn't obviously a hatred that caused her to withdraw from him totally in that. It's just his heart and affections were more towards Rachel than to Leah. How about Proverbs thirteen twenty four? Whoever spares the rod hates his son, 
but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There's people you know who do not discipline their kids. You see their kids running crazy. That doesn't mean they hate their kids and think where we think of hate, where they're just like pouring out all their anger on the kids. But the Bible's description is that if you really love your children with a deep, deep love, you will discipline your children because it's best for them. So here love-hate is used in the Jewish culture, in the Hebrew language, to explain loving what is the superior type of love. And you can probably think of other examples in Scripture that do that as well. That's the most common idiom found throughout Scripture, but there's others as well, and I've given you a few examples here. Our hearts melted. It's not like something out of a romantic movie, right? But this is found throughout Scripture. Like in Joshua chapter 11, when the people of Jericho heard that the Israelites were there, they said, as soon as we heard that God's people were coming, our hearts melted with fear. It's an imagery that shows a loss of courage when God's people were coming against them. How about weeping and gnashing of teeth? Luke 13, 28, Jesus says, in that place, we're speaking of hell, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a literal weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is showing the pain that there is, the, the, tor- the, the torment that there is separated from the Lord forever in hell. How about blotting out one's name? This comes in Exodus chapter 32. Whoever, God says, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out. It's an image for God's judgment. This is coming after the golden calf. And so blotting out one's name isn't literally God up in heaven with some white out, singing, naming, like scratching. The, you know, it's an imagery for us to help us understand, an idiomatic expression to help us understand God's judgment against a person or a nation. How about the apple of his eye? This is found in Psalm 17, 8. It's a prayer to the Lord. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep, it means to be precious in God's sight. And so it's just an expression for that. And this is always a fun one. Girding up one's loins. Well, King James expression. Some translations keep it. Some don't. One of the rules that mean to gird up one's loins. Or the, I use the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it retranslates that. His belt fastened. You know, what is that an image of? It's an image of being prepared and ready for action. And so like in Exodus 12, as you're getting ready for the exodus from slavery, the people are told to gird up their loins. Or again, in translations, to have their belt fastened. It says to have your belt fastened, your loins gird up, and have your shoes. That means be ready for what's to come. And so in the New Testament, when Peter applies it in 1 Peter 1.13, having girded up your, the, mind, your, the loins of your mind, it's being prepared for what God is doing. And I, and I didn't put this on your, your sheet. I almost dared not even mention it. But if you have fun reading in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 8, it refers to the, to the people of Israel. It says, destroy all those who pisseth against the wall. Is the King James. <laughs> Literally, it's what the, if you read the King James, that's how it's translated. Most English doesn't like that. So most English, even literal translation where you translate it, destroy all the males in the, in the area. You know, if you look back at the Hebrew, it literally means destroy all the people who urinate standing up. It was an image. It was an idiomatic expression that our translators kind of wiped out because, well, you know, it kind of made us a little bit uncomfortable. But that's 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 8. It was an expression that the King James translators kept in faithfulness to the Scripture to refer to Men. And so all I say, the Bible is full of idioms. And just like we use idioms, it's not an imprecision on the Bible's part. It's not an inaccuracy on the Bible's part. It's using a commonly form of expression that the author would understand, the people would understand, just as you and I would as well. Just we don't correct each other when we use idioms. In our conversation, we need to understand that's how the Bible uses it as well. Now just briefly, a few other types of speech you'll see in the Bible, just for clarity's sake. First of all, metaphors. This is where a comparison is made where one thing is being referenced, the thing being referenced is called something else. So a comparison is being made. This is just a funny one. This is speaking of the the women in this particular town. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. 
It doesn't say you women who act like cows. It literally says you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Say to your husbands, bring, me, bring that we may drink. Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. This is an imagery of judgment coming, but the comparison is made without saying these people are like this. You just, as you're reading through it, this has absolutely nothing to do with them attacking the cows of the city. It's a description, and, and it was almost an idiomatic expression, a metaphor at the time. Cows were described and understood in that culture to be fat, you know, overweight, kind of carefree, and they're using that to describe the, the wicked people of this city here. <clears throat> Similar imagery David will use in Psalm 22, verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Well, he wasn't literally fighting against bulls. He wasn't, he wasn't doing a stampede thing with his little red cloak there trying to get the bulls to run through. What was it? Well, he kind of switches to simile here. They opened their mouths and me like a ravening and roaring lion. And so this is just a comparison that's being made. And so you're looking for that. When you read something on the surface, you're going, why is he talking to cows? What's he doing with bulls? Realize there could be a metaphor here that's being used. So those are hard to find. But similes are pretty easy for us to find. They're a comparison between two things. And they usually have words like like or as to help us find them. So Psalm 1 is one of my favorite similes in all the Bible. He is like a... So blessed is the man who does not walk in the council of wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. But he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff the wind blows away. Away. There's a comparison being made here between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are like trees. You can picture a desert scene, this huge tree growing right by the river because it's got plenty of water. You can picture this dried up area as well. You get this imagery here of the person who delights in God and his word. It's a simile, and it gives us an, a comparative effect. We remember that. And if we didn't have figurative language, we would lose that image that sticks with us. So, or Matthew chapter 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That does not literally mean there's going to be lightning when Jesus returns. It's saying if you're out on a dark night and there's lightning, you see it. All around you will see it. It's instantaneous. It appears in the same way when Jesus returns. It'll be instantaneous. People will know he has returned. It's a simile to help us do it. So Jesus' return has nothing to do with lightning. It's simply an, a simile to help us understand how his coming will be. Now, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right. Synecdoche. If any English teachers in the room, you can correct me if I have pronounced it incorrectly. I got a thumbs up from down here, so hopefully that's right. But a synecdoche is a part, is a part of something is used to represent the whole. So let me think of this in English ways. If you're ever on like a sea ship and they say, all hands on deck, people don't start lopping off their hands and throwing their hands up on the deck. You get all hands on deck. It isn't really about the hands, it's about the whole person coming the Bible has synecdoches to help us understand who God is, what we're to do, where the part represents the whole. So Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. So don't only ask God for bread. I don't ask him for drink. I don't ask him for meat. It's a synecdoche. It's representing all of our food and perhaps even all of our needs. It reminds us of that God provides. So we ask God for all of our needs. The part, the bread represents the whole, all of our needs. Or Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So people who share the gospel, only their feet are pretty. The rest of them are ugly. The feet represent the whole. It represents in God's sight. Whoever takes the gospel, those who have never heard, are beautiful in God's sight. And it's a synecdoche. Their feet just represent the whole person, how God views the whole person. Lastly, there's anthropomorphism. This is where God is described with human characteristics to help us understand his character and his actions. 
now, and this is important because John 4, 24, God is spirit. So God doesn't have body parts like we do. God the Father is spirit. And so when we read 2 Chronicles 16, 9 there, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless to him. God the Father does not have literal eyes. This has nothing to do with eyes shifting back and forth. This is all about God sees everything. This is God's knowledge, his omniscience, his knowledge of all things was being conveyed here. It's an anthropomorphism to help us understand that God sees everything. It doesn't mean that God physically has eyes. Or Psalm 91, 4. This is a, a fun one. He will cover you with his pinions. Anyone know what pinions are? Like, yeah, the little feathers at the end, the end of a bird's wings. Yeah, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wing you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. This has absolutely nothing to do with God as being a bird. God is not a big hen or a big bird with physical wings. This is an image for us, an anthropomorphism to help us understand God's protective care for us. And then how about Psalm 98.1? Oh, sing to the Lord a new psalm, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arms have worked salvation for him. So God doesn't use his left hand? Is it unclean? Yeah. This has nothing to do with hands and arms. It's simply an anthropomorphism. It's a metaphor, if you will, for God's action. When you see things in the Bible talking about God's hands and God's arms, it's referring to God's actions. <clears throat> One more thing I want to mention on this that's not on your handout for tonight. But just to mention in passing, I thought of this afternoon, because there's not really another place to really plug this in in our study, but I think it fits in with this, is to realize the way Bible handles quotations and numbers. When we do things, if you've written science reports or things, you footnote everything. You know, when I wrote my dissertation, y'all, one of the worst parts of it was trying to make sure every footnote was correct. I spent, I wasted weeks and months of my life footnoting things. Why? Because we have to have this precision accuracy. You have to be able to find the exact quote on the exact page. It has to be in quotations and all those things. When the Bible was written, there was no such thing as quotation marks. In fact, there was no punctuation. When the Bible was written, there wasn't even sentence breaks. When Paul started writing, he didn't even put spaces between words. When Paul started writing, he started writing word after word after word. So our translators are having to think, I think that's where this word ends. This one starts. Like There was literally not even spacing between words. So there was no quotation marks. So realize in biblical times when quotations were done... They were, they were quoting the idea that the person shared, but they didn't have the type of precision we require today. If a newspaper today reports what the president says and puts it in quotes and it's not what the president all said, they come under a lot of fire because they were making up stuff. You can't quote people, but in biblical times, quotations weren't done like we, we do now. So realize that quotations are going to... So if you read two Gospels and both are quoting something, and they perhaps it reads a little bit different because quotations weren't held to the same level of precision they are today, and that's not a measure of accuracy. That's just how the culture communicated at the time. Likewise, numbers are the same way. We speak in approximations. People ask me, well, how many people were at church Sunday? Oh, 200. Well, there was actually like 225, you know. So you don't, you don't fire me for inaccuracy in what I'm saying. I was giving you a generalization. So when you read the Bible, you go to like 1 Kings chapter 20. Israel struck down 100,000 of the soldiers. Did someone actually count them all? That's not accurate. What if it was 100,013, you know? It was giving us a generalization of the rough amount of how many people were struck down. So when you read the Bible, a lot of times you'll see everything's in nice, even, round numbers. It's not a reflection of accuracy. That was how numbers were reported back then. You know, when I go to Jordan here Stadium, they're like, tonight's attendance is 86,213. And I'm always thinking, how did you count that? Like, you know, how did you really figure that out? I guess you're counting at the gate. But we have today an expectation of that type of precision and counting. That wasn't expected when the Bible was written. So we're presented in kind of big, whole, round numbers. So we're like, how is every battle 100,000 or 150,000 dying? It's giving us the generalization of the multitudes that are dying. And that was understood at the time. So don't impose on the Bible 
21st century journalistic standards understand how the culture communicated at the time and recognize it as such. Well, that leads us to our discussion for tonight. And in our last half hour, I want to break up into some small groups. So I want to talk you through what I want you to talk about in your small groups tonight. <clears throat> so turn to your back page. Number one, do you believe that something can be shared with exaggeration and still be truthful? Why or why not? I've kind of biased a little bit with my own perspective tonight, but y'all have fun talking about that. It's okay if you have different opinions than I do. Number two, do you ever use exaggeration, not lying exaggeration? If you use ex- lying exaggeration, we can help you with that, Mr. Pastoral, Staff, and Elders. But do you ever use exaggeration, not lying, in your speech to convey feelings? And if you did so, how did the person to whom you're speaking know was exaggeration? So do you use exaggeration to convey feelings? How do the people you're talking to, your kids, your spouse, how do they know that you're using exaggeration that way? Then I want you to have fun with this one. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So I'm going to kind of guide you through how we work through that text. Instead of giving you the answer, I want you all to work through it together. First question there, would a literal reading of hate, as we typically understand hate, be in conflict with any other scripture? And because you probably didn't bring your big massive concordances with you tonight, I gave you three scriptures I want you to look up and read and, and to help answer that question. Then I want you to say the question, look at the immediate context. Again, Luke 14, 26 does not stand in isolation. It's part of a longer account of Luke 14, 25 to 35. So what's the main idea of the passage? Who's Jesus talking to? The very stuff we've been working through the last 11 weeks. What is the main point in this particular passage? Then third one, let scripture interpret scripture. How does this saying here in Luke 14, 26 compare to what Jesus taught in Matthew 10, 37 and 38? Because Jesus teaches something similar in Matthew 10, but he phrases it differently. So how do you let what he says somewhere else interpret what he says here? In light of all that, do you believe there's a Hebrew idiom being used here? <clears throat> and then the last one. So then what does this saying really mean about hating one's family? So I want you to kind of work those questions come up with like we talked about for what is the meaning of Luke 14, 26? And then do something similar with Matthew 17, 20 for number four, if you have time. I didn't give you all the questions. I want you to just work through this on your own. But in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, as I've been hearing your stories and going to lunch with you and having some of you couples into our house for meals, none of you have told me yet about looking at a mountain on the side of Montgomery and saying, move, and watching the hill go down the interstate. So is this literally true or not? Like, do we, is this, because Jesus, we need to take him in his word. So are there figures of speech that are being used here? And if so, then using all the principles we've discussed so far, letting scripture interpret scripture, looking at context, looking for idioms, all the type of stuff we've been talking about for 11 weeks, in those principles, what then do you believe this verse means? Or not what do you believe, what does this verse mean? And then lastly, I want you to take a few minutes and use the scriptures on the front of your page to pray for yourself and your people and your group and your church. I would love to know what would happen if God did this in all in my heart, in the heart of the elders and the deacons and the Sunday school leaders and life group leaders and our children's teachers and youth workers and all of us, if all of us saw God's law as perfect, reviving our soul, the testimonies of God's, of, of the Lord being sure, making wise, if all of us long for the Lord like a deer panting for flowing streams, if all of our souls were consumed with longing for God's rules at all times, that's a great thing to pray for yourself, for the people in your small group, for your church. So would you take a few minutes then and use this to pray for yourself, your, for the people in your small group, and your church family. So I'm looking for the guys who normally lead our discussions. I see Seth here. Where, where, Greg's here. I know CJ's over here. Dave's back there. That four, I think we might get anyone else. Really? So yeah, let's, let's go ahead and break up. You guys stand up. Let's go ahead and divide up into groups of about 10 people each or so. If we need one more group, there's some other guys here I know who could step up and lead for us as well. So y'all split up into these groups and let's have these and, and discuss these things. If you have any questions, just let me know.